As I said, we're going to be in Luke chapter 16, um, but uh, I'm going to call an audible this morning and uh, have you turn to Luke 16 and mark your place there. But then having done that, um, if you could uh, turn over to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, I'm going to start there. So, uh, so open to Luke 16, mark your place, and then turn to the right and go to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4 for a preamble here today. Uh, I'm struggling with a cold, by the way, so, uh, so your grace will be <laughs> appreciated. I went to see my grandbabies in Virginia, and uh, somebody on the plane got me sick. So uh, thanks a lot, American Airlines. But anyway, 2 Timothy 4. Let me start off here. This is Paul's letter to Timothy. Timothy's a young pastor. He's taken over a church that Paul himself planted. And uh, so Timothy's got this challenge. He's got to shepherd this flock. And so here's what Paul has to say to Timothy. He says, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Paul is saying, look, Timothy... There's a judgment coming, and God has entrusted sheep to you. He has entrusted these people to you, and and God is going to be judging both you, and he's going to be judging them. So you have to make sure you do your part to feed them and to equip them. That's what he's going to go on to say. And you have to make sure that they themselves are prepared for judgment. And so he says, verse 2, with this charge, preach... The word, and that word preach, it means to herald with authority. And that's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to preach the word, and I'm heralding with authority. Not my authority, but with the authority of God's word. And so he says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching, for, here's why, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. And this is true in Timothy's day, and it is doubly true in our day today. That, listen, if you decided today that, you know what, I just, I just don't want the inconvenience of getting dressed and going to church. Well, you can stay in your jammies. You can go online. You can listen to any teaching you want. Uh, there's a comedian recently who did a bit on this for a fake product called a, a virtual reality church. And, and he talks about how, you know, you can pick whatever you want, the kind of worship you want, the kind of dress style you want, and, you know, do the, the dress yourself online, your fake emoji, whatever it is, however you want to be. And then you can pick the level of conviction that you want the message to be. <laughs> I don't want to be convicted. I just want somebody to say nice things about me, whatever it is. Man, this applies today. And so Paul says, look, that, that day is coming. And when people are going to heap up for themselves, teachers, he says, um, they're going to turn aside. He says, but you... As their pastor, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Now, why do I emphasize this? I emphasize this because today we're going to be in Luke chapter 16, and there's two things I want to say about the message today. Number one, without exaggeration, first, or this this message in Luke 16, um, it's one of the most important foundational lessons that you will learn as a Christian. Very important, has, has, has uh, big implications 
for your growth and maturing and for your impact in this world as a Christian, okay? That's true. But it is equally true that the chance exists. There is a distinct possibility that before I'm done preaching today, that some of y'all are going to get angry, that, I'm, that, I, that you're going to be mad at what I have to say today. And really, it's not what I have to say. I'm just the mailman here, all right? My job, I'm just bringing God's word and telling you what it says and what its implication is for you. And there's, the chance is you might get angry with me. And I just want to encourage you, Lord, you know, by, Lord, please, by, by his strength, uh, if you find yourself getting angry, would you just note that your issue is not with me? It's with Jesus and his word. And that if you find yourself getting angry, maybe you need to take a walk with what God is showing you today. All right? So how's that for an introduction? You're like, well, let's get into this. Let's, let's, what is it possibly I could get angry with? Luke chapter 16, verse 1. He also said to his disciples, so clearly he's talking about Jesus, said to his disciples, there was a certain rich man who had a steward, And an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. And so he called him, the rich man calls this steward, and he says to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. Now Jesus here, he has left the house of the Pharisee where he had been invited. If you were with us a couple of weeks ago, Luke chapter 15, Jesus having been invited to one of the prominent rulers, this Pharisee, to his house. And um, he'd been invited there for that Sabbath meal. And you remember that Jesus, in the course of that, of that meal, he wanted to communicate and convey to these hard-hearted Pharisees the love of God, the, the heart of God, the heart of the Father for the lost. Um, and, and really that God has gone to great lengths to seek and to save that which is lost. And why is it? Because people are precious to God. And so here now, Jesus, he's, he's, he's left that Pharisee's home. He's continuing on his journey to Jerusalem. And as he goes, uh, Jesus here begins to address his disciples. Now, they're all going along. And so he's got his, his disciples, his immediate, you know, 12 and then the, the throngs, the multitudes that follow him everywhere he goes. And among them are the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders. So they're in tow here as well. And so Jesus here, he's addressing primarily his disciples, but everybody's within earshot. And so everybody's going to hear this, and we're going to see the Pharisees and the Sadducees are going to respond uh, to the things that he's saying to his disciples. Why? Well, because he's addressing his disciples about the plight of the Pharisees. And the plight of the Pharisees, the problem that the Pharisees have right now, is that whereas God is a lover of people, the Pharisees are lovers of money. And the text is going to tell us just bluntly that in verse 14 when we get there. And the point that Jesus is going to make, and he's going to make it repeatedly, he's going to make it through a couple of stories, and really the entirety of the chapter comes down to this, is that everything we possess belongs to God. Everything that we possess, all your money belongs to God, all your possessions belong to God, the very clothes on your back belong to God, and God has entrusted his goods to you and me, 
not for us to squander and to waste as this guy has, but rather he's entrusted them to us to invest for his purposes. And you all are going, ah, there we go, I get it. I understand the preamble now. (coughs) And so, we got to understand that's key to this chapter. So Jesus begins the story, he's focusing on two characters. He's focusing on this rich man, and he's focusing on this steward. Now, a steward was and is a manager of property, a manager of money, the things that belong to the master. And in this case, we see this rich man is this particular steward's master in the story. And this particular steward, he is guilty of wasting his master's goods. And so the the word wasting there that's used in verse 1, if you're given to take into notes, you could circle it nearby. Here's what you could write. You could write to squander or to scatter abroad. That's what this word means. And the idea here is that somewhere along the way, this steward began treating his master's goods as though they were his own. In other words, rather than working to reap a profit for the master and for his purposes and for his master's use, what he began to do was say, this is mine and it's going to be for my use and it's going to be for my pleasure. Now, in so doing, this steward forgot two critical details of stewardship. I'll put them on the screen for you. Hope you write them down. Take a walk with this. Two critical details of stewardship. Number one, that all he had belonged to his master. He forgot that. Number two, he forgot that a day would come when he would have to give an account of his life. And this is important for every last one of us here today because it applies to us as well. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that you and I... Our stewards, we are stewards. Peter put it this way, First Peter chapter 4, verse 10. He said, each of you should use whatever gift that you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Now, the implication of this, that what Peter says, is that our stewardship, it goes far beyond our wallets. Okay, certainly it includes our wallets, but the implication is that our stewardship goes to every aspect of our life. And indeed, the Bible says that we are to be stewards of our time. It says that we are to be stewards of our talents. And the Bible says that we are to be stewards of our treasure. Our time, our talents, and our treasure is all given to every one of us by God. And in every area of stewardship, the Bible makes it abundantly clear, specifically 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2 says this, that it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Now that phrase, be found, is amazing because if you look at it in the Greek, what does it mean? It means literally to discover by inquiry. And the implication of that is that every last one of us is going to face an audit. Literally, we are going to be audited by God. And that's exactly what the Bible says. Paul, speaking to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, he says, we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or the evil we have done in this earthly body. Paul here, when he's talking about standing before Christ to be judged, he's not talking 
about the judgment of whether or not you're going to go to heaven or whether or not you're going to go to hell. This is uh, what's known as the judgment seat of Christ, and there is a time for every Christian when, when your, your salvation has been settled. You are a follower of God. You have received Jesus Christ, His forgiveness to you by grace, through faith. I'm a sinner. Lord, save me. Make me a new creation in Christ. God graciously has saved you, and yet the day stands for every last one of us that, the, that we saved, we're going to heaven, but now what's going to happen is everything that we have done, our stewardship, will be judged. What kind of a steward were you? That's what's in view here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now let me hit the pause button right there. Let me ask you candidly. If you were audited today, if God audited you today, said, I want to know what kind of a steward you've been with your finances. I want to know what kind of a steward you have been with your possessions. What would that audit show? How would you do? Very popular in the news right now, there's a story about a Philadelphia couple, and um, they, uh, the, as the story goes, it's since been shown to be a big old fraud from start to finish, but as the story goes, basically this gal gave, you know, she ran out of gas, encountered some homeless bet, and he gave his last 10 bucks to her for gas, and they were so moved with compassion uh, that they started this um, GoFundMe account. And it raised over $400,000. Well, what happened was, that through, through a series of incidents that, that came to the authorities' attention, they started to investigate this whole thing. They did an audit on what happened to the $400,000, and they found out that this couple spent most of it. They bought themselves a new BMW. They bought themselves vacations, a bunch of expensive handbags. They went gambling at the casinos. And... You hear that story and you just scoff, right? You're like, give me a break. Are you, I can't believe you've done that. But listen, in the moment that we do that, we need to understand that as Christians, you know, we've done the equivalent thing to God with our money, many of us. And, and, you know, while some are grossly guilty of this, like, you know, they, they spend lavishly upon themselves, and we're talking, you know, BMWs and, you know, Mercedes and mansions and, you know, all of that stuff, and simultaneously given next to nothing to God. But listen, let me just tell you on a more simplistic level, I serve on the boards of, of many churches. Currently, I serve on four different church boards. Over the years, I've served on at least a dozen church boards, probably closer to two or three dozen church boards in, in the you know, 27 years I've been a pastor, whatever it is. And I will tell you that without exception, every single church that I have served on the board of directors of, over 50% of their people spend more money annually on Starbucks than they do on giving to the things of God. That includes our church, by the way. Now let that sink in. You spend more money on coffee than you do on the things of eternity. Now, let me just say very clearly, and hear me on this. I'll put it on the screen for you. Wealth is not the issue. Worship is the issue. Wealth's not the issue. Worship is the issue. It's not a sin to have nice things, by the way. I'm not saying we should all go live as paupers and give everything that we make to the Lord. Some people, God calls them to do that. But it's not a sin to have nice things. God provides for us. The, the issue is it's not sinful to have or to enjoy money. It's sinful when your money has you. 
okay? It's not sinful to have or to enjoy money. It's sinful when your money has you. There's a huge difference between the two. I'll give you an illustration of what I'm talking about. Brenda and I, we were at a, a conference several years ago, and, and Rick Warren was speaking. And now you say that name in some Christian circles, people freak out. I'm not talking about the man's ministry. I'm not talking about his doctrine. I'm not talking about anything. I'm talking about his testimony. And his testimony is powerful. He wrote the book, The Purpose Driven Life, and when it was published at the time, it was the most, se- the, it was the, the most selling book of all time next to the Bible. And so he made a lot of money on this book. And what he did was he gave 99% of the money away. And he gave them to the things of God. Um, one of the things he did was uh, he wrote his, his own church a check for every dime he had ever been paid. Uh, so I'm currently working on that. I'm working on my book and, you know, pay, pay all that. <laughs> I'm kidding. But he wrote, you know, he just gave it all away to God. Now, he said, so he got some criticism at saying, I, I gave, you know, 99% of that away. People went, oh, you know what? It's easy when you've got that much coming in to give it away. He said, no, it's not. He said, because here's the thing. If you weren't already a giver, it doesn't matter how many zeros that you add to the left of the decimal point. If you're not already a giver, you're not going to give. And, and so what he had done long before he ever wrote this book is that he and his wife Kay had purposed in their hearts, we want to be good stewards with, with, with what God has entrusted to us. And so every year they endeavored that they were going to give more to the Lord. They would prayerfully sit down and they said, you know, some years, you know, they couldn't increase their tithe, but many other years they could. And they would just say, Lord, you know, how much more can we give to the things of the Lord? So he was already giving the majority of his income to the Lord in, in you know, in just faithful stewardship. And he said, I'm firmly convinced that the reason God gave me that book is because he knew what I'd do with the money. And then he said, what would you do with the money? See, it was T.D. Jakes who said, listen, if God can get the money through you, he'll give it to you, you know, kind of thing. And, and so this was, you know, his, his testimony. See, the, the thing is, it's a heart condition. And that's why we're going to see Jesus in verse 9. He refers to money as unrighteous mammon. Unrighteous mammon. Mammon, it's an Aramaic word, and, and literal definition of that word is this. It is that in which you push, put your trust. Mammon, that in which you put your trust. And when you put your trust in anything besides God, and money is a good barometer of this, because a lot of us, I'll trust in my checkbook, but I'm not going to trust in the good book. You know, And so when you put your trust in anything apart from God, that's unrighteous. And so Jesus will call uh, money unrighteous mammon. And the day is coming for every single one of us, like the steward in this story, that the master's going to require an accounting. And so here he is, we're back in the chapter, and the, the, the master's already told him, hey, you're, you're wasting my goods, you're spending it like it's yours, <clears throat> I'm demanding an accounting, go get the books in order, come back. Verse 3, then the steward said within himself, <laughs> ah! right? <laughs> he says, what shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I have resolved what to do, that when I'm put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. And so he called every one of his master's debtors to him, and he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. 
And so he said to him, take your bill and sit down and quickly and write 50. And then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And so he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. And so the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. And I say to you, now Jesus is adding his commentary on the story. I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. <clears throat> now up until that point, you, you kind of read the story and you're tracking along and then all of a sudden it's like, whoa, whoa, wait. The master commended him? Jesus is saying, I say to you, you know, use your unrighteous mammon kind of in this way. And, you, and you, you're like, I don't get, that leaves me a little uncomfortable. Like, is Jesus commending like the, this sort of slick, dishonest behavior? No, he's not. Um, the master, in this example, and the evidence that comes in, it would seem that he was probably a landlord. Okay, and what would happen in this society was an agrarian society based on agriculture. And so a lot of times the landlord, he would rent out a piece of property and the way that he would get payment was when you were on that property and you planted your crop, you know, wheat or barley or, you know, an olive grove or whatever it was, then a portion of those crops you would give that the, the actual harvest in the form, that was your form of payment. So, you know, the, the one guy, he gives to him wheat. The other guy, you know, obviously he's got an olive grove, and so he takes the olive oil, and he gets a portion of the olive grove. That's his rent that, that he pays. And <clears throat> many commentators, what they speculate is that the steward here in this story, he was kind of acting like the tax collectors of the day. Remember, we talked about the tax collectors a couple of weeks ago, and what they would do is they were responsible to collect what was owed to Rome, and so they would do that, but then they would tack on their own tax on top of that. And then they would take that for themselves. And so many commentators speculate what this guy had done, this steward, is that he jacked up the rent. And so he was getting a payment from them, which was certainly what was owed to the master. But then over and above that, he was, taking, he was skimming off and, and collecting more for himself. And so what happens now is when he marks down, he calls them together and he's marking down their debt, what he's actually doing is he's, he's collecting the, the true rent that was owned to the master and, and he's just, you know, waiving his dishonest portion that he's tacked onto it. Well, why? Well, because he's never going to see that anyway. He's getting fired. And so what he's doing here, he's banking on what was the Eastern culture of reciprocity. And, and so in this culture, what would happen is that if you gave a gift to somebody, it then ingratiated them towards you, that they had to reciprocate. They had to take care of you, and, and it was deeply ingrained in their culture. It's not like, oh, I'm going to you know, do this good favor to you so that you'll pay it back, and maybe you will, maybe you won't. No, they, they would definitely do it because you know, of this culture of reciprocity. And so this is what the steward is talking about in verse 4 when he says, I've resolved what to do, that when I'm put out of the stewardship, they, he's talking about his master's debtors, may receive me into their houses, right? And so this is what he's talking about. Now, Jesus only gives us two examples that, you know, we've got the one guy that apparently is renting an olive grove and another guy that's, that's raising wheat. But we can reasonably assume that these are just 
two of a long list of, of the debtors to the master. And so what this guy is doing, what is it? He's setting himself up for the future. He's going to have a lot of favors. He's going to have, you know, this big old laundry list of people that owe him these favors of reciprocity. Now, Jesus, understand, he's not suggesting that God commends sneakiness or dishonest behavior, anything like that. That is not the moral of the story that Jesus is telling. The moral of the story has to do with planning for the future. Get that in your mind and think in eternal things. He's just an earthly example with an eternal meaning. And he's saying that this master, in the earthly sense, he's going to commend the guy. Man, that was really shrewd. Why? Because the guy used his resources to set himself up for his earthly future. But in the heavenly, what God is talking about is that we should use our resources, all the things that God has blessed us with, God is our master, to set ourselves up for our future in heaven, for, the, for the, our, our future to come. And, and again, it's not that you can earn or purchase your way into salvation. That's not what's in view here. The idea here is that your treasure is where your heart is and vice versa. That's the idea. You know, and Jesus is saying, and I'll put it in a modern context, just as the sons of IBM and the sons of Apple and the sons of Microsoft, just as they are so shrewd in taking, you know, this, this money and investing it and reaping a greater return on it and building their net worth and their bottom line, what Jesus is saying is that we as Christians should be equally as shrewd with our money and we should be driven to turn a spiritual profit for the kingdom of God. And then Jesus adds this, just to make sure that, that we hear what he's saying. Verse 10, he says, He was faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? Here's the key. No one can serve two masters. For either will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Here's what Jesus is saying. Don't miss it. It's very clear. The issue is you've got to choose. You have to make a choice. You're either going to worship God or you're going to worship something else. You're going to worship your wallet. And so the issue is which God are you going to serve? And which kingdom are you going to invest in? That's what you need to take a walk with today. Pastor Chuck Smith, he said this, money can be a blessing, it can be a curse. It all depends on how a person uses it. It can be the closest thing to omnipotence that man possesses, but so often creates impotence. What a great story. I'll illustrate it this way. Here at the church, you know, for years, we would invest in doing a... Um, you know, a harvest party, a Halloween alternative. And we would spend thousands of dollars to, to have this event that, you know, that people could do as an alternative to being, you know, involved in some of the pagan practices of, of Halloween. And we, I stepped back after a few years, and I just looked at it, and I said, what kind of return are we getting on our investment? And one person, of all the thousands of dollars that we spent, of all the years that we did it, only one person, had made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ 
at this event that we were doing. And I, and I just sat down with my guys and I just said, look, I'm not spending the church money to, to organize people's social calendars, to provide events for people. So it just not, it's not a good investment. And so rather what we did is we sat down and we said, where are we going to get a bigger bang for our buck? And we determined VBS would get a bigger bang for our buck. I said, let's take all the money we spend on Halloween. Let's put that into Vacation Bible School. And now, by God's grace, we step back years later and we look at that investment and we say, man, we've had over a thousand professions of faith at, at, at Vacation Bible School. I go, man, that's, that's a better investment of God's money. It was Francis Bacon. He was the Lord Chancellor of England back in the 1600s. He said this. He said, money makes a good servant, but a horrible master. How many of you have discovered that? Money makes a horrible master. Brenda and I, we discovered this firsthand. We, early on in in our marriage, we made a train wreck of our finances. We were selfish. We were self-centered. And we just spent money like we had it. And it didn't help that I was a fireman and you could work all kinds of overtime. I'd be like, oh, I'll just work another overtime shift, you know? And so pretty soon, I'm working seven days a week, and we're spending all this money. We're deep in debt. And God gets a hold of our hearts. We were convicted. It's like, I got nothing to show for all this, you know? And, and I just don't feel good about, I, I feel like I've just completely failed God where money is concerned. Anybody ever, you ever been there? Can you be honest? You just come to Jesus kind of time right now. You ever been there? And so here's what happened. We, God got a hold of our hearts, and we, we sat down. And we said, we want to we be better stewards. And, and so we had this great desire. I, 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 we both felt like God had laid it on our hearts. We wanted to give, you know, 10% to the Lord. And, and, and you go, oh, is that net or gross? <laughs> Which kingdom are you living for? It's whatever God tells you. And, but, but we felt, you know, at the time, it was like, man, I want to give 10%. There was no way. I had, I had messed up our, our finances so badly. I couldn't give 10% if I wanted to and, and meet the debt obligations that I, that I had encumbered us to. So I'm praying. I'm like, God, what do I do? And God gave us some wisdom. We determined to start by following four guidelines of giving. I want to put them on the screen for you. God gave us this wisdom. Four guidelines of giving. Number one, he told us to give sacrificially. Number two, he told us to give regularly. Number three, he told us to give increasingly. And fourthly, he told us to give joyfully. Let me explain that. First of all, giving sacrificially. God, God spoke to me. He said, look, I don't want you to, to skip out on the debts that you got. I want you to be faithful to, to pay off your debt. Um, but... You're going to give sacrificially. So you, you take a look at, at, you know, what could you sacrifice and, and give something to me? And so I said, all right, I, I will do that. And so, you know, we, we sat down. We're like, what could, what, what, what could we give that would be, it, it'll be painful, but we could do it. We could sacrifice and do this. So, so that was our first step. Secondly, the Lord, you know, said give regularly. Like, don't just do that once and feel good about yourself. I did it. No, do that every month. And so, hey, I'm going to give sacrificial. Actually, for us, I got paid biweekly, so it was every other week. It was like, we're going to give. Um, give regularly. Thirdly, give increasingly. And, and this, you know, we, I'm going to build up to 10%. And then, you know, having sat down and been blessed by Rick Warren's testimony, we came away from that. God spoke to both of us. We're like, we want to do that. 
And so, by God's grace, every single year, we come into the fourth quarter, and we'll sit down in, in November, and we'll start talking about the, the next year. And, and Lord, can I give more this year, this coming year? And so we just try to give more. And it's not, it's not a legalistic thing. It's just a heart thing. I just want to be generous. And so, so I want to give to my church, my tithe. I want to give offerings over and above that. So, you know, we're building the building and we got, you know, phase one, phase two, phase three. And so, you know, over and above that, we just want to give to that. Um, and then there's other stuff that you come in contact. You, you run into somebody who's got a need. I had a gal telling me after first service, you know, that they were endeavoring to tithe and, and taking these steps of faith and, and all, and that there were people within the body that saw them in need, and then they just respond, and they would, they would just give generously to them. And, and we're like, we want to do that. And we want to be in a position where I could just help somebody if they've got some sort of a need. Um, you know, there's, there's outside ministries that we support, you know, over and above what we do here. Like, you know, there's a... a, a pro-life ministry that we've supported for several years. Every time, I, you know, you, you do these things, and what happens is, and this goes to joyfully, as you're giving, it's with an eternal perspective. And so, let me tell you how this works out. Like, you know, I'll preach the gospel here on a Sunday, and I'll give an invitation. And you guys have been here, you know, and, and the Lord's just moving, and, and, you know, thank you, Jesus. It'd be like, I see that hand. I see that hand. I see that hand. And something just happens in my heart when that transpires to where I'm like, Lord, thank you so much that I get to be a part of this. Thank you so much that this, I mean, it's a return on my investment, you know? And and it's like, where else can you take earthly temporal things and have them count for eternity? You know, I, I hear stories of people in marriage counseling and stuff and how, you know, they're, they're coming and their marriages are, are falling apart and they're being ministered to and they're making, and I'm just like, man, that, I'll, invest, I'll invest in that. You know, and, and it just, just, our last baptism was in November. It was beautiful. Remember that? We, I mean, we had over 50 people here getting baptized. And I gave invitation on that Sunday and I had a guy sitting right over here. His name was Michael. And he'd been an alcoholic for over 30 years. And he responded to the gospel, raised his hand to receive Christ, and he ran to go get changed. He came and got baptized. Right? Thank you, Jesus. Yeah, we can clap for that. Thank you, Lord. You see, I want to give joyfully because that's the, I'm like, yes, that. I want to be part of that. I want in. See, it's, this is hard. It's not, oh, I could have bought, you know, this or that with that. Now, I'll be honest. Sometimes, you know, you're writing out your check and you're thinking, boy, this would be really nice to go towards. But you just go, no, of course I'm not going to do that. And so, you know, it's giving joyfully. And I just love what God is, is doing and what God's going to do. And the fact is he involves us in it. You know, we're to give our time. We're to give our treasure. We're to give our talents. You know, it's the same thing. You know, when, when you serve Jesus and you're just giving of, of the talents that he's given to you and, and you go, where else can you give your life to some sort of endeavor, some sort of help physical thing, and it reaps eternal benefits? There's nothing else. And so I'm like, thank you, Jesus. Now, verse 14, we continue. The Pharisees who, here it is, were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. That word derided literally means they turned their nose up at Jesus. They're scoffing, they're complaining, they're criticizing, and he, Jesus, said to them, 
You are those who justify yourself. And isn't that what we always do when we're guilty? We justify what, what we do. We're making you know, justification for why I'm not doing this and not doing that. He says, you justify yourself before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. He goes on, the law and the prophets were until John. He's talking about John the Baptist. And he says, since that time, since John the Baptist came, transitioning from the Old Testament law to the coming Messiah and to the new covenant that is being poured out and John proclaiming there's a new covenant in Christ, since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. All these scores of people pressing in to hear and to, to receive Jesus Christ and to, just recognizing that the Messiah has come. He says they're pressing into it. And he says, and it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law. The uh, tittle of the law, just to give an example in our English language, we dot an I, we cross a T, that would be a tittle of the law. And basically what Jesus is saying is, yeah, there's a new covenant. Yeah, it's one of love, it's one of mercy, it's one of grace and, and all. And we don't earn our way into heaven by, you know, the, the religious keeping of the law and so on. But he's saying that doesn't negate the law. That doesn't negate God's standard. And so what he's saying here basically is, like, if I could put it into context for us here today, what he's saying is, look, you come to church as a Christian and you hear a message on giving and you go... Hey, you know what? The New Testament doesn't say I have to give 10%. No, it doesn't. But it does say that God loves a cheerful giver. And then the attitude is, is that I don't view money as how much do I get to keep. I view money as this belongs to God. And it doesn't change God's heart one iota. And so he, <coughs> he goes on and he says, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her is divorced from her husband. I'm sorry, whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. And now he's going to go on and he's going to give us another example of a guy who mismanaged his money. And you're like, wait a minute, what's up with verse 18? It's just sitting there right in the middle of this stuff. You're talking about money, 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 and then you said divorce, and then you go back to money again. It's like, what on earth are you talking about? Well, keep keep in mind, he's talking about the law. He's talking about the righteous requirement of the law. And evidently, during this time, there was the, the Pharisees, they debated about a lot of stuff. And they had different opinions about stuff, and it all depended on what they, what they wanted to do and what they didn't want to do. They would just kind of worm their way around it. For instance, in marriage and divorce, there were two prominent schools of thought during this time. Two different rabbis teaching two different things. One rabbi was Rabbi Hillel, and he basically taught about marriage and divorce that, hey, you know what, if your wife makes you mad you can divorce her. If she burns a toast, you can divorce her. Uh, if she becomes somebody that you don't think is, is pretty, it hasn't maintained, she hasn't painted the barn, then, <clears throat> then you can divorce her. Uh, if you see somebody else who you think is prettier than your wife, you could divorce her and take her as your wife. That's what Rabbi Hillel taught. Rabbi Shammai, on the other hand, he taught, hey, the only reason you can divorce is if your spouse has been unfaithful, which is, in fact, biblical. Now, who do you think had the bigger church? Everybody loved Rabbi Hillel, right? Why? Because they could just skirt around, you know, what what the requirement was. And Jesus is basically saying, look, I'm telling you how you're supposed to live. I'm telling you about what the heart condition needs to be. 
And you ain't going to worm your way around it. That's, that's, that's sort of the idea here. Well, verse 19, there was a certain rich man. Jesus goes on. Now, this is debated. Is this like a parable, just a story? Well, I don't know. In every other parable, he never gives a name of the people that are involved. But here he gives a name. So it's like, is he describing an actual event? I don't know. Maybe. But there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he fared sumptuously every day. That's an understatement. It means the guy was effectively eating, you know, lobster and caviar and abalone every day. You know, not that he would. That would be shellfish, and they wouldn't do that in the law. But you get my point. Um, but anyway, he's eating, like, sumptuously every day. Uh, but there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, right, right there at this rich man's gate, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. I'll just take the crumbs that fell off the table, and the implication here is that he wasn't. He was completely ignored. And moreover, Jesus says, the dog came and licked his sores. Poor, despicable poor man. And so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom, The rich man also died and was buried, and being in torments in Hades, he, the rich man, lifted up his eyes, and he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And then he cried, and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. I know I let him sit at the gate all the time and never had a one concern, but would you please make him serve me? But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus, evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. Critical contrast to Jesus' first story. Remember the unjust servant? And he's going to lose his stewardship. And what's he do? He takes heed about what his future is going to be. He stores up for his future. And here's an example of a guy who didn't store up for his future. It's a great contrast to the unjust steward. And besides all this, Abraham continues in Jesus' story, between us and you, there's a great goal fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Get clearly what he's saying. He's saying it's too late. Your fate is sealed. That, you would have had time for that before you dropped dead. But now it's too late. And then he said, Well, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them that they also come to this place of torment. Now, for the first time, he's showing care for other people. Right? No teacher like the burnt finger, literally. And Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets Let them hear them. In other words, hey, listen, you know what? They can read their Bibles just like you could have read your Bible. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Now, this is ironic on two levels. Number one, who rises from the dead? Jesus, did the Pharisees come to to saving faith? Most of them know, right? So like in the ultimate sense, that's what's in view here. But if you know your Bible history, you know that there's an incident that's that's coming here in the close future for Jesus, and he's going to raise somebody else from the dead. What's that guy's name? 
right? It's actually going to happen. And if you read in John chapter 11 and John chapter 12, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead and the word comes to these very scribes and Pharisees who hear that this man Lazarus has been raised from the dead, what's their reaction? Here's their reaction. Somebody's got to kill Jesus because he's causing, he's bad for business. And if he keeps raising people up like this, everybody's going to follow him. They literally, that's what they say. So, so, so Jesus is telling this, this prophetic story, just saying, look, it, it, it's not going to get them. They're just, they're, they're hard, they're hard-hearted. Okay, let's wrap all this up. Let's just finish it up. Here's the deal. Let's bring it home. Application. Where's your heart? Where's your heart? Can God get it through you? If you're in a situation where you're like, man, God, God's not getting it to me. Maybe you need to take a walk. And I'm not, this is not a prosperity God, doctrine. This is just simple... Kingdom math. If God can get it through you, he'll get it to you. That's just how it works. And we need, to, and, and more importantly, we just need to take a walk with, like, if, I'm, if you're worshiping money, it's a really lousy master. It's going to leave you wanting, and it's just going to leave your life in a horrible state. You don't want to be there. And so the issue comes down that you just got to answer the question, is money my master? Is money my master? Um, one, one quick thing on that, you know, these the scribes and Pharisees, they, they were known as like, hey, I'm going to tithe every little bit. You can tithe and still have money be your master, you know, because, because these guys, they would have said, oh man, I'm, you know, I'm real, I give to God everything. Not with the right heart they did. No, it all comes down to, you know, like what's your attitude about money? And if you view from the very beginning, look, I'm a steward. I belong to God. I belong to the one who loved me so much that he sent his son to die for me. And he loves me so much that, that he, he lavishes out upon my life. And all he asks is that I would have the same heart of generosity for others that he has for me. And, and, and I, I can keep for myself and use for myself as he provides for me just so long as it doesn't come down to it's all about money and every decision I make is filtered through what it is that I really worship. And so we gotta, we got to take a walk with, what is it that you really worship? Now, let me put this up on the screen for you. I'll, I'll have it here, and we're going to close with worship and partake of communion, but at the end of the service, we'll leave it back up as well. And you can take a picture of it or whatever. But here's some questions for you know, homework for you, okay, this week. Is money your master? All right, number one. Do you think and worry about money frequently? Number two. Do you forsake doing what you should do or what you would like to do in order to make money? Number three, do you spend a great deal of time caring for your possessions? Number four, is it hard for you to give money away? Number five, are you in debt? Number six, do you use your money regularly to help others? Number seven, what does your checkbook register say that you value? We grade ourselves on a curve. We give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. But you go back and you look at your checkbook register, and it's remarkable. It's just like your calendar. You say you value time with your kids, and then you look like at where you spend your time, and you go, oh, do I really? No, not in practicality. Maybe in my wishful, hopeful, want to, I do, but I really don't. And your checkbook register is the same thing a wishful, hopeful, my best self in the future, I'd like to. It's not a circumstantial thing. It's a, 
What's it say about what you value? 